So if you always dreamed of uh, Benjamin Franklin winking at you, your, your life is complete now. You can, you can go to the other side, I guess. Uh, so I know we're in church, but how many would say, maybe at the risk of even looking or feeling a little bit unspiritual, but how many would say this morning, I could use a little more money? Like, just raise your hand if you go, I could use a little more. Come on, raise them up, raise them up. Look around, everybody look around. Look at all those heathens all around you. I knew, I knew it. Um, no, it's true. Like, I mean, if we're honest, sometimes we're in church and we're, you know, a little bit shy about it, but sometimes, like, we don't want to admit it. But the truth is, is like, a lot of us and most of us kind of feel that sense of, uh, even if there's not a lot of pressure, but we just feel that sense of like, man, if we just had a little bit more. And so uh, today we're actually beginning a month-long conversation about money. And so we're going to be looking at some of the things that God teaches us in the scriptures about it. And, and honestly, it might not be what you think. And so a lot of times when churches talk about money, it's almost always about giving. Uh, but here's the good news. You can breathe a, a really big, deep, you know, sigh of relief this morning because we're actually not going to talk about giving at all this month uh, in any way, shape, or form. So, uh, but the question, the question is, really, uh, when this comes up, is, is why talk about money here at all? Like, it's, it's not like there's a, a shortage of advice out there or info out there about money and what to do with it and how to manage it. And, and quite honestly, a lot of it's really good. In fact, we use some of it. We regularly utilize uh, Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University to really, yeah, some Dave Ramsey fans in the house, I like that, uh, to help people get their arms around their finances. And the truth is, like, I'm not in any way a money guru. I don't have everything figured out. And I've definitely made more than my fair share of mistakes when it comes to money. But what I do know, and the reason why we're spending several weeks talking about this is this, is that money is spiritual. Now, I know some of us don't believe that, but it's true. And for those of us that do believe it, you know, we, we struggle to know what that means and how to live in light of that reality. But here's how Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we have this tendency to want to kind of divorce our money from our spirituality, to pretend like there's no overlap, there's no crossover, you know, it's, it's just not true. But according to Jesus, your heart, the core of who you are, is connected to your stuff, to your treasure, to your money. You're not just a physical being who happens to have a spirit. No, you are in fact at your core a spiritual being who just happens to have a body. So everything in your life, everything in your experience, your relationships, sex, money, your life, it's all spiritual. Now, if you don't believe me, I just invite you to pick up the scriptures in the next few weeks and dig into them and prove me wrong. Like, I, I would love nothing more than for you to begin to search this stuff out for yourself and you to come, be, you know, come in on Sunday and be like, what about, and I saw, and did you read, and did you know, and you know, I, I would love to have those conversations. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking like, and, and I totally understand this pushback, like, you know, like I'm cool with God and, you know, I kind of like church and the music makes me feel good and we laugh and the messages are helpful, but why ruin a good thing by bringing money into the mix? Let's just kind of keep them separate. But the chances are, the truth is, in your life, you've already mixed them. Like you've already mixed the spiritual stuff 
with the money stuff. Most of us, no matter what we believe about God, if disaster was to strike us financially and God forbid we lost everything in our lives, most of us would find ourselves in the position of praying in some form or another. Even if we don't believe in God, we'd kind of whisper a prayer just in case. And, and I, I find it interesting that, that we're a little more open to a conversation with God about money when we kind of need his help, like when we need money, than, than when we don't, right? But, and maybe that's where you are this morning. And honestly, if you're in that place, I just want you to know that God sees you and he's wanting to have that conversation with you. So, because if you've ever prayed at all that God would help you sell your house or pay your bills or feed the kids or keep the power on or not run out of gas. Oh man, I prayed that prayer so many times because I always ran my tank empty and then I'm like, oh no, have you ever prayed that? God, please let me make it to the gas station, right? Like if you've ever prayed that prayer, even if it was just sort of a, a general prayer to to the universe, like you weren't actually talking to the God, you know, maybe you got your like lucky rabbit's foot and your star of David in your pocket, Buddha and a cross, just to kind of make sure you cover all your bases, right? Like, like if you've ever done anything like that, you've already mixed them. And honestly, that's okay. You shouldn't feel bad about that because like I said, money is spiritual. And and so I want to begin this series asking this question. Like, like, if we're willing to trust God and move in his direction and kind of invite him into the conversation, maybe invite him into this part of our lives when we have nothing or when we're up against it, why not, why not be willing to have that conversation when everything's kind of going okay? Why wait for things to be crashing down around us? And, and maybe the bigger question underlying all of that that we're going to tackle today is that can, can God really be trusted with any of this stuff at all? And if so, what does that actually mean for us? A couple weeks ago, I shared this uh, story on Facebook, so some of you may know this, but we have a, we have a, a little guy named Kelton, and he just turned six, and, and uh, about a month ago, he was outside playing, and for some reason, he was playing with our mailbox, and uh, he was like pulling on the flag, and he just broke the flag right off, and, and uh, because I um, am a pastor and can't fix anything or work on anything. Like, it's like, all right, we need a new mailbox. Cause I don't, I went out there. It doesn't have a screw in it. I don't know how to fix this. So I was just like, all right, dude, we're, you know, he comes in and he's all sad. I accidentally broke the mailbox and he was very choked up. And I was like, I don't, I mean, I, you know, okay, let's talk about it. And so I went out there. I was like, sure enough, I'm going to have to replace the mailbox buddy. And he, and he was just like, you know, upset. And I said, and so here's the deal in our family, when we break something, whether we meant to or not, like we're responsible to either fix it or to replace it. And since it can't be fixed, um, you have to replace it. And so um, you're, we're going to have to buy a new mailbox and you're going to have to pay for it. And he just was, <gasps> he just started bawling and crying. And I was just like, well, I go, Kelton, why, why are you crying? And he said, now I'm not going to be able to afford my Lamborghini. To which I said, dude, if we get there and you're only 30 bucks shy, I'll kick in the 30 bucks, man. If you help you get that Lambo, as long as you give me a ride. Like, but here's the deal. Like, it, it's such an interesting journey when you're a parent, right? Like to, that, that, that you're on to teach your kids about how money works. And, and, and if, you're, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, like why God cares about it and what he says about it and what it means in our lives and how to have a healthy relationship with it, like all that stuff that I wish I would have known. And 
learned a lot sooner in my life. And so as we begin to kind of wrestle through these conversations, I wanted to begin this whole series and begin today really with a definition of wealth. And so um, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, there's this really interesting uh, observation that, that God shares with us that the apostle Paul wrote down in a letter that he wrote to Timothy. And he writes this in verse 6. He says, yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. What an interesting observation. What an incredible thing for him to say. And I think it should actually make us stop and ask ourselves, what is it that we actually believe is itself great wealth? Growing up, um, my family was pretty poor. My parents got divorced when I was uh, pretty young and my mom was awesome, but she was a single mom. She worked hard, uh, but she was a single mom taking care of a bunch of kids herself and, and uh, and I didn't really know I was poor until I got into middle school and the other kids, you know, made it clear I was poor. Uh, and so, but when I was in middle school, we started going to this really, we were living in Sacramento. We started going to this really large uh, church in Sacramento called Capital Christian Center. And it was full of what I thought was a lot of wealthy people. And uh, early on in seventh grade, I met this girl named Hansi and uh, started hanging out with her and got to meet her family and to me, they were one of those wealthy families. And so one Sunday after church, they invited me to go to lunch with them. And man, I was hyped. And, and part of the reason I was so excited was because of the car they drove. And I'd seen them leaving church before, and I was so jealous. And, and so Hansi and I were sitting with the other youth students during church. And after the service, we were going to meet up you know, with our parents. They were going to pull the car up under the carport and we were going to go outside and meet them outside. So after church, we kind of walked over to the designated spot and they pulled up in, in their car, which was awesome. And it was pretty close. It was pretty close to this car right here. <laughs> yep. Late 80s model Dodge Caravan. Man, it was... It was smooth, you guys. It was, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, you guys don't understand. Inside this car, they had an AC that worked. They had room to spread out. They had comfortable seating for seven. And I don't know why, but in my seventh grade brain, that was just like, man, if you can fit more people in your car, you must be doing something right. It was the nicest car I'd ever been in up to that point in my life. Now, listen, there isn't anything wrong with that car. If you still drive an 87 Dodge Caravan, more power to you. Like, awesome. But what's amazing is that's what I thought great wealth was in 1987. Now, the truth is in 2000, you know, 2021, don't we all have something that comes to mind when we think of great wealth? Like we all have a, a list of all kinds of things that would signal what that would look like to us. But here in 1 Timothy, like God actually tells us that great wealth is, atta is attaining something that money can't buy, contentment. But I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but contentment can be pretty hard to hold on to because somebody else always has something just a little bit better, just a little more. I'm a big movie guy. I love movies. In the movie, Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, there's an exchange, <laughs> yes, there's an exchange between two stockbrokers, Jacob Moore, played by Shia LaBeouf, and Bretton James, played by Josh Brolin. And it went, it went a little something like this, where Jacob says, what's your number? 
Breton says, sorry. Oh, uh, we'd start you at 300 like everybody else. As a partner, I only pull in 600 and then the bonuses. Jacob says, no, 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 no. Your number, the amount of money that you would need to just walk away from it all and live. See, I've found that everybody has a number and it's usually an exact number. So what's your number? And then Breton actually says a number that I think all of us would say. He says, more. See, don't, don't we all live with an internal wish list of what we would buy and what we would do if we just had just a little bit more? We're always tempted with more stuff and more status, but the Apostle Paul's number, what God's telling us in 1 Timothy is that that number would be enough. It would be enough. See, isn't it amazing that most of the richest people in the world, they never get to a place where they're actually content. And and so whether it's our houses or our cars or our toys or vacations, I, I think we've become convinced that we should all be able to carve out our own little piece of paradise in our lives. And that once we do, if we could just get to that point, like the angst would stop, right? Or at least it would ease up. The striving would stop, that it'll, it'll be enough. But the question is, would it, actually, would it actually be enough? It's almost as if the more that we have, the less satisfied we are in our lives. And it's really a problem that's plagued us from the beginning. The story of, of humanity actually begins in paradise, and it still wasn't enough, which begs the question, would we even recognize paradise if we were actually living in it? So in the opening scene of humanity, there were only two people on the planet, and they were literally made for each other. They were both formed by God himself. They were attractive. They were naked. They were surrounded by beauty that was created specifically for them. They could pretty much do anything they wanted, go anywhere they wanted. They had no bills, no obligations, no stress. They really only had one limitation to not eat of one specific tree. It was paradise. And then this happens. Check it out in Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. It says, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the fruit? any of the trees in the garden, which is a lie to begin with, because that's not what God said. Verse two, of course we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, the the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. (laughs) You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were indeed opened, but suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. So they began to sew fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now, one of the things I find super interesting is that 
for Adam and Eve, as good as everything was, the thought was still, maybe paradise really isn't paradise. You'd be happier if you had something different, something more, something else. And the truth is, isn't that kind of the lie that we sort of wrestle with, right? It's almost as if even when we have everything we could ever want, we somehow still want more. The human craving, capacity, desire for more. For them, they actually get more, but instead of making things better, it actually made them worse because they ended up doing what they said they'd never do. Not only did they have an agreement between themselves, they had an agreement between themselves and God. They ended up doing what they said they would never do to get what they wanted. And it ultimately put a rift between them and God and between them and each other, and it ruined the very thing that they had. They ended up having to leave the garden, and it wasn't until they looked back that they realized what they had actually lost. Have you ever known someone who destroyed something good in their life because maybe, just maybe, there was something better out there? That's what they did. And so whatever they had, whatever they were given, was just never enough. For Adam and Eve, it all began to unravel the moment the question was posed to them. Did God really say? It started to all kind of come apart with doubting God's goodness, with wondering if God can be trusted in this area of their life, or is he holding out on us? What's fascinating about this story, no matter what you believe about the origins and the beginning of creation, all that stuff, but what's fascinating about this story is that God was more willing to trust Adam and Eve than they were to trust him. See, God didn't tell them, hey, look, okay, I created all this stuff, but you don't do anything or go anywhere until I get back. No, he gave them ownership and responsibility. He entrusted everything that he created, he entrusted it to them, even knowing that they were going to betray that trust. See, because God never actually allows our lack of character to change his character. He never, allows, he never allowed our actions to determine his love and goodness and how he behaves towards us. And the truth is, is like a lot of times when it comes to our money and stuff, the truth is that God trusts you more than you trust him because everything you have, everything that's good in your life, all the intellect, the creativity, your body, everything you have to go out and create wealth, your job, everything you have in your life. In fact, the scriptures tell us that the earth is the Lord, that all the creation belongs to him. So everything is his and he's entrusted a whole bunch of it to you. And isn't it crazy that he trusts you more than sometimes we trust him? Maybe the bigger deception we all fall for is that this is, doesn't really apply to us, right? Like, like an addict sort of telling themselves that they can quit anytime they want. I think the hardest part of this conversation is we've convinced ourselves, like if we had just a little bit more, it really would be enough. Gallup did a survey a few years back and they asked people who were making less than $30,000 a year. They asked them this question, how much would you need to make per year to make you feel rich? In other words, how much would be enough? Okay, the people making just shy of $30,000, the answer they gave, very specific, $74,000 a year is the answer they gave. Now, how many people, you don't have to raise your hand, but just think, how many people are making $74,000 a year or more and just feel like, man, I just got so much money, I don't even know what to do with it. It's way more than enough. Right? 
probably not a lot of us. So they asked people making 50,000 a year, how much would it take to make in a year for it to be enough for you to feel rich? The answer they gave was 100. Yet when they asked people making 100,000 a year, if they were rich or if it was enough, they all said no. In fact, they kept asking people and all these little markers all along the way, they asked people who made $2 million a year, are you rich? Is it enough? And they said, no. Are you satisfied? No. Almost all of them said, now if I made 5 million a year, then that would be enough. Isn't it crazy that there are people out there who when they try to imagine how much would be enough for them, the answer they come up with is what you already make or less than what you make. Isn't that crazy? You're just like, look, in the, in the words of the immortal philosopher, Biggie Smalls, <laughs> more money, more problems. Am I right? Like these people don't even know. But here's the deal, more is always a moving target. That's why, that's why you can have all those different answers. That's why it doesn't matter what people make. Nobody said, yeah, this is enough. Like I make enough. No, everybody was like, nah, I need to just right over there. If I could just, just get right there. And see, that's the lie that we buy. If we could just get right there, it'd be enough. But then we get there and the goalpost moved and we're like, nah, this isn't enough. Like I just got more problems. I, got, I need more. A few minutes ago, we read from 1 Timothy, the definition of true wealth. A few, uh, few verses later, the apostle Paul wrote these words uh, in 1 Timothy 6, 17. He said, command those who are, who are rich in this present world. And I know when we read this scripture, we all go, that's not me, right? We know that because everybody in that survey said that they weren't rich, right? So, but just imagine these words were written to you. Just try to pretend. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Because that's the temptation, right? To trust ourselves, to trust our money, to put our hope in all the things that we accumulate and all the stuff that we have. And it's almost as if the more good we have, the more prone we are to question God's goodness. The more susceptible we are to distrusting him, especially when any of the goodness we have in our life is threatened in any way. We're just like, I just, I thought you loved me. I thought you cared. Soon as any of our stuff gets threatened, we immediately start doubting his goodness, wondering if we can be trusted. See, that, that's why Jesus said what he said about our treasure in our hearts. So he's saying, if you will have a natural tendency to let money and stuff become the focal point of your life. You will have a natural tendency to allow that stuff to control your heart. And here's the really uncomfortable part. If Jesus is right, my bank statements, my Amex bill, my checkbook, people still have checkbooks, I don't know. Visa statement, I know you, I know my wife has one. She's old school. She's not, she's not going to use technology. She wants to write the check and put a stamp on something and lick an envelope and send it off. I salute you, babe. But if Jesus is right, like my bank statements, my credit card statements, my checkbook, like those are all declarations about my relationship with God as much as anything else. See, if Jesus is right, like you could look at me and say, man, he's so godly. He's got those fly dance moves when he worships. 
He teaches so eloquently and profoundly. Can't even say it without laughing. He leads a church and he helps people find God. He must be so spiritual. He must be so close to God. But Jesus would say that none of those things, even if they were true, are the truest reflection of where my heart is, of whether or not my heart actually belongs to God. He would say that the real truth lies in my relationship to my stuff, to my money. Now, I have to be honest, that is really uncomfortable. That is a hard truth to swallow. But but here's the thing. It's impossible for things to be right between you and God in an ongoing way and things to be screwed up between you and money in an ongoing way. Like, sometimes when we come to God and his grace, like, there, there is some overlap there where we're figuring things out and our lives are getting cleaned up and we're learning to trust him. And, you know, but, but eventually, us being in right relationship with God is going to begin to order and bring health to and healing to all the areas of our life. So it's, it's impossible to be, for things to be right between you and God in an ongoing way and it not impact how you relate to money. Not because of the nature of God. He doesn't care about your stuff. He's not going, man, if I could get those jeans they got. No, it's not because of the nature of God. It's because of the nature of money. Now, if this conversation scares you a little bit or makes you uncomfortable or makes you angry or makes you just kind of go, I can't believe I came today. Honestly, that's completely normal. But it shouldn't make you feel any of those things because when you read the stories of Jesus, you could read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You could read all the stories of Jesus. Jesus never asked anyone to give him their money. That's because he wasn't trying to get people's money. He was trying to keep people's money from getting them. And it's the same for us. And everyone in this room knows what it feels like in the area of, the, of personal finance to be gotten. And God is saying, I want to help you. I want to free you. I want to untangle you from the mess of all of this stuff, from the emptiness of chasing more. See, because no one has ever ordered their world of personal finance around what God says and ended up upside down. It's never happened. No one has ever ordered their their personal finance world around what God says and ended up in the shape that so many of us have ended up in because we've taken our cues from culture or we spent our lives chasing more. And every time our income went up, our, our, our standard of living went up and it just keeps bumping and there's no margin and we just feel that stress and the tension, no matter how much we make, we have bills to match and it's just that constant Nobody, that, that's never happened to anyone that's ordered their life around what God says. See, because God's heart is actually to help us have a proper, healthy relationship with our money, with our stuff. Because when you see as God sees, you'll be more inclined to do as God says. That was true of Adam and Eve. It was true of the people in Jesus' day. And it's, it's true of us. Don't fall for the lie of more. So but how, how do we know? Like, how, how do we know if we're sort of caught up in that? Right? Because a lot of times what happens is we sort of look at, we just look at it all on paper, and it's true. We need a little more. And our thought is never, 
hey, let's lower our standard of living. Our thought is, in order to increase our quality of life, we have to make more money and raise that standard of living. So how do we know when it's just, actually, we do need a little bit more? I I read something a, a number of years ago. I don't know if it's true, but it's pretty darn interesting. They talked about, <clears throat> can money buy happiness? And ultimately, they, they pursued this and began to ask people, talk to people. It turns out the answer they came up with was yes to a certain point. And then there's a law of diminishing returns that kicks in. That after you start making more than a certain amount in your life, that the trouble with, that comes with making more than that number actually causes your happiness levels to go down. And the number they came up with was about $67,000 a year in the United States. Ecclesiastes chapter five, verse 10, it says this. It says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. And I wonder if we could reverse engineer those verses to, to get an accurate picture of ourselves. Like, I, I just... Bear with me a second. Like, like, if we haven't reached the place where we have enough, is it possible that it's not because of how much we have, but because we have been blinded to our love for more? Right? If we can't look at our income and say, man, if I never earn another penny more than this in my life, I'm good. It's enough. If, if we haven't reached that place, is it possible that it's because we have a screwed up definition of what true wealth really is? I don't know if you caught it when we read that verse in 1 Timothy. You talked about not putting your hope in wealth, but you can put your trust and hope in God because he provides everything for us, for our enjoyment I don't know about you, but I've spent most of my life finding it hard to believe that God cared about my enjoyment. But there it is. Like God actually cares that you enjoy your life. James, the brother of Jesus, said it this way. He said, every good and perfect gift comes from God. That everything that's good and beautiful and enjoyable and fulfilling and satisfying about being alive and living your life is actually a gift to you from God. I I think so often, so many of us can end up being like Adam and Eve where God trusts us a little more than we trust him because he has entrusted some of his creation and some of what he's made, but we've fallen in love with the gift and begin to doubt the goodness of the giver. In Proverbs chapter three, verse five and six, it says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Now, the difficult part of those verses is the part that says all. It turns out there's this verse, many places in the scriptures where God is having a conversation with us and he uses the word all. And he's really into that word, and I'm not so into that. Like, I'm into some. Trust God with some of my heart? Done. Trust God with some of my life? Got it. 
Trust God with some? Man, I'm 100%. Why wouldn't I trust God? Just trust God with all of your heart. See, some aspects of our lives are just easier to surrender, right? Like we, we all have areas in our lives we'd rather not trust God because we like to feel in control even when we're not in control. And so often, like Adam and Eve, we want to kind of dream up our own paradise, even if the thing that we're sort of designing in our brains and in our mind is doomed from the start. See, from God's perspective, this conversation's never been about money. It's always just been about your heart, your life, who you are, what's at the core of what it means to be human and to live in relationship to your creator. This conversation for God has always been about love and freedom and life. So I wonder, what is it that you believe is itself great wealth? I wonder, do you trust God with all of your heart or just some? Have you decided that you're going to follow him and acknowledge him and follow his path and what he says in most areas of your life, holding back one or two? Or have you just said, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. I don't, I don't know what you're saying, what you, what you want to do, where you're leading, how it's going to go, but I'm going to trust. Have you, have you trusted him with all of your life? So the next few weeks, we're actually going to get really, really practical in a couple of different places. But I, I wanted to start this conversation this month here because this is the most important part of the conversation. Why? Because otherwise you could end up winning at a game that doesn't matter. You could get better at managing the stuff you have and get more and you could win at a game that doesn't matter. You could gain the world and lose your soul. Throughout his life here on earth, Jesus repeatedly said these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. The word repent is just to rethink your thinking to rethink your preferences, to rearrange and reprioritize your life. To go, God, I was going down this path, pursuing this thing, and now I'm stopped, turned around, and I'm gonna go that way to follow you. And then he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. It's the life and the place where God's intentions and his priorities for you and those around you, where those things take precedence. It's the place of his fulfillment and wholeness and satisfaction and contentment and peace. How tragic to miss all of that because we were chasing after more. I, I wonder what it would look like for you and for me this morning to step back in the very literal sense repent, to change your mind, to rethink your thinking, to rethink the path you're on and your priorities. Why? Not because I said to, but because the kingdom of heaven is here. The, the place 
of fulfillment and wholeness and satisfaction and contentment, the place where God's intentions for you are unfolded, the place where God's life for you comes alive, it's here. And it's not in the accumulation of stuff, I can tell you that. Let's pray together.